0: Welcome, everybody, to Star Cells and God. This is a podcast where we explore the latest discoveries in science and what they mean for the Christian faith, showing how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, My name is Fuz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which sponsors this podcast. And so uh, if you want to know more about our organization, please go to our website reasons.org or you can follow us on a uh, social media rtb underscore official also if you're watching this make sure you go to our youtube channel reasons to believe or you can subscribe uh, and also set a reminder so that you'll be notified when new episodes of stars cells and god drop uh, i'm joined today in studio by uh, dr hugh ross astronomer, uh, Christian apologist, and the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. And we both are going to share new discoveries about uh, that that have implications for the Christian faith. But before we get into today's uh, discoveries, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, offer uh, our listeners and our viewers uh, something special. Uh, They are, you guys, if you go to our website, reasons.org, backslash donate for a donation of any amount, you can get an exclusive audiobook copy of a book called Humans 2.0. I wrote this book along with a philosopher by the name of Ken Samples, and we published the, the book in 2018. And this book deals with the topic of transhumanism, the idea that we can use science and technology to enhance human beings beyond our natural biological limits. And Many people see a lot of ethical issues, I, me included, with this particular uh, idea. But there are people uh, called transhumanists who are excited about these prospects because they see human enhancement technology as a way to attain a practical immortality where science becomes and technology become a type of gospel, a, a, t- a mode for salvation. And so I see transhumanism as being really one of the most influential ideas in the next several decades and a a competitor to the Christian gospel. Uh, And so in the book Humans 2.0, Ken and I engage this idea and show how really transhumanism represents a false gospel. Uh, But if you are, again, uh, interested in an audiobook copy of Humans 2.0, we just released the audiobook uh, a few months ago, Please go to our website again, reasons.org/backslash/donate, and again for any amount you can get a your exclusive copy of the audiobook version of Humans 2.0.
1: And uh, Fuzz is now available in three versions: print, ebook, and audiobook. Right?
0: Yes. Yeah. So.
1: And I don't know about you, but I have a different experience with a book when I read it in print form, uh, when I read it on my computer in ebook form. And when I listen to it when I'm driving. And uh, to me, that's the best way of really getting all the content is having those three different experiences. Yeah. So, yes, if people already have the print book, get the audio book. Uh, it's something, Me, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving, it's good to have something that's stimulating my mind yeah. uh, while I'm driving.
0: Yeah, particularly in the Los Angeles uh, rush hour traffic. <laughs> or when I'm
1: Having to sit with my family through some meaningless television episode, I can kind of listen to the book. It's a great book, but, yeah, I would encourage people, hey, take advantage of this technology as talking about and really experience the book yeah. in all three formats.
0: Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you. Hey, hey Hugh, uh, why don't you go ahead and get us started today? You've you've got a discovery that involves uh, – Panspermia, and so I'm k- really curious to see what this discovery is well, all about.
1: Well, Buzz, you and I uh, teamed up to write the book Origins of Life, and it's now in a second edition. And there's a whole chapter in that book on uh, panspermia. And uh, so, and when we wrote that book, I thought, you know, uh, this panspermia thing has really been put to rest, but it's coming back. And I was rather surprised in a couple of recently published papers. It's being promoted by a number of prominent uh, research scientists around the world at past peer review. And so uh, two of the papers are right here. This one is uh, titled uh, Cause of the Cambrian Explosion, Terrestrial or Cosmic. Mm -hmm. And they address the origin of life and they address how do we explain the Avalon and Cambrian explosions. And this was followed up by a later paper, uh, relatively new, is commentary of panspermia and the origin of life, mm-hmm. and so I just want to read to you uh, some quotes uh, from these two papers and some comments I want to make. Um, I'm old enough now and got to put glasses on. Okay, <laughs> that happened to me a couple of years ago. But they begin by saying uh, life did not originate on planet Earth, and the reason they make that point is to say if we look at planet Earth and think that life originated here, it happened in an incredibly brief period of time. And they basically say the brevity with which the origin of life occurs actually rules out the possibility that it could have happened uh, on the earth. And uh, they make the point that abiogenesis is a consensus, the only plausible hypothesis for the origin of life. And when they mean by, abi- by abiogenesis, is physics and chemistry working on the ingredients in the universe to produce a living organism. And they mean that by the naturalistic operation of the laws of physics and chemistry. And I would agree, I mean, we've been at Origin of Life Mm -hmm. research conferences, it is a consensus. And so they're basically saying, well, from that framework, there's no way it can happen on the earth. It must have happened somewhere else in the universe and been delivered to the earth uh, via the comets. And the reason they're excited about comets, comets are mostly frozen water, yeah. uh, but the rest of cometary uh, makeup is basically carbonaceous molecules. Yeah. And so you see stuff in comets uh, that are the building blocks of the building blocks of life molecules. So that's kind of their rationale for saying, uh, if you got the universe, you got a lot more volume and, uh, and yeah. you got a lot more time. And maybe we can, you know, Mm. solve the ABI genesis problem. And this, and I would agree that panspermia in the scientific community is considered a kind of way out theory. But the argument they make in these two papers, 33 authors are involved in this from institutions around the world. And uh, as they're making the point, hey, it sounds like an outlandish idea, but way more outlandish is the idea that it happened on Earth uh, because of the brevity. And this first slide here is basically making the point, if we look at the history of the Earth, number one, we know the Earth had a very hot origin. And moreover, shortly after that hot origin, it experienced a collision with the rocky planet Thea, Mm -hmm. which heated up the planet even more. And then during all this time, you got these comets and asteroids bombarding the Earth. Mm -hmm. And there is some debate exactly what that bombardment history looks like. But this is roughly the scenario uh, where you get a late heavy bombardment. But the whole point is, whether you believe in the bombardment or not, you've got this hot origin of the Earth and it remains hot uh, thanks to these bombardments. And what you notice is you don't get stable liquid water on the Earth or stable solid rocks until about 3.83 billion years ago. That's the first time that you—I mean, there are episodes earlier than that. Where you got brief mm-hmm. moments where you get liquid water and rocks uh, but in terms of rocks that are stable and water that liquid water that's stable doesn't happen until about 3.83 uh, billion years ago
0: and that brief w- those brief windows of stability are, are ultimately interrupted in a dramatic way with the late heavy bombardment well,
1: this is what they comment on in their papers is saying hey even if you appeal to earlier than when we have the first definitive evidence for life on Earth, the time window is even briefer. And so they said, this isn't going to work. Uh, And what we notice uh, for the first really undisputed evidence for life on Earth is based on isotope evidence, uh, but uh, basically 3.825 billion years ago, give or take 0.006 billion years we see three distinct isotope signatures telling us microbial life was present on the Earth. Mm-hmm. It was stable. It was abundant on the Earth. Well, that's only a few million years after the first moment when Earth has stable rocks and stable liquid water. And this is what resulted in uh, the evolutionary biologist, Niall Zeldridge. You've made this comment too, Fuzz, in his book, The Triumph of Evolution in The Failure of Creationism, where he says, one of the most arresting facts that I've ever learned is that in the very oldest rocks that stand a chance of showing signs of life, we find those signs. And so life apparently appears instantly on the earth. And what these 33 authors are saying is that if it appears instantly on the earth, it couldn't have originated on the earth. Yeah. The time frame is way too brief. We're only looking at, at most a few million years. So, uh, therefore, uh, it must have come from some reservoir right. in uh, outer space uh, where we have a lot more time, and then comets brought the, the life uh, here uh, to planet Earth.
0: Because there is a, a variation of panspermia that says, you know, maybe the prebiotics didn't originate on Earth, that they were delivered through comets and asteroids and dust particles. You know, but you you still, in that scenario, in, envision... The original life process proper happening on a terrestrial setting. So they're talking about not the delivery of kind of like a prebiotic inventory of materials. They're talking about the delivery of organisms.
1: Well, either that or uh, you know, complete RNA molecules, DNA molecules, mm. and uh, the proteins. So we're not just talking amino acids and nucleobases and sugars. And they comment on that in their papers. They're saying. This idea of panspermia, where the comets bring the building blocks and the building blocks of life, they say that won't work. Mm. You still need an enormous amount of time uh, for there to be any possibility. And you need an enormous abundance. They're basically saying planet Earth is too small with too little time uh, to be uh, a reasonable Mm. uh, candidate for the origin of life. So there's something more than just the delivery of amino acids, nucleobases, and sugars must be in mind. And I'm older than you, Fuzz. I actually had the privilege of taking a course, a short course from uh, Carl Sagan. And I remember in that uh, lecture, he was really supposed to, he came to lecture us at the University of Toronto on planet formation, but he couldn't help but not talk about the origin of life as well. And his comment was, the only way you're going to get an origin of life is with a vast sea of concentrated prebiotics percolating for billions of years, at least a billion years. And uh, these 33 authors are basically picking up on this and saying, Sagan is right. We need a huge treasure chest of these uh, prebiotic molecules, and we need enormous amounts of time, and planet Earth doesn't provide us uh, with that time frame. Now let me read a few more comments here uh, in this, uh, these two papers. They do make they they basically quote Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle has passed away, but a number of the authors of these uh, papers were his graduate students, mm-hmm. Chandra Wickramasinghe in particular. Ed Steele is another one. Uh, but Fred made the point that interstellar dust is very rich in organic uh, molecules. Well, uh, interstellar gas and dust comes from these uh, giant uh, molecular clouds that exist uh, throughout our galaxy. That's true of all uh, big spiral galaxies. And uh, when they talk about organic molecules, what they mean are the carbonaceous molecules Mm -hmm. that are similar to the smaller molecules we see inside cells. And they have discovered an impressive array Mm -hmm. of these molecules. Uh, The list is now up around nearly 140 of these molecules have been discovered. Uh, But unlike what they're claiming in the paper, We've yet to find an amino acid in an interstellar molecular cloud or an interstellar gas or dust. Mm-hmm. We've yet to find a nucleobase. They make a big deal about the fact that we found sugars, but by sugars, they're referring to the three carbon sugars. Yeah, so. They haven't found the five or the six carbon sugars that uh, we see in life
0: dihydroxyacetone.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got it. So, <laughs> and uh, they say. Oh, they're also claiming that in their model uh, that life is seeded not only by these organic molecules, but even fertilized ova and plant seeds. So that's a big step up in panspermia. We're not just talking molecules, and we're not just talking uh, genes. They're saying actual seeds, plant seeds, and fertilized ova of animals are being delivered. And that raises a question well, how could they survive interstellar space? Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they repeatedly talk in the paper about a rain of extraterrestrial living matter. And so what they mean is we're getting a rain of genes, intact genes, that are coming down to the Earth. And uh, they're basically looking in particular at the Cambrian explosion. Say, so, yeah, how do we explain all these phyla suddenly and simultaneously appearing? at the beginning of the Cameron explosion, and to a lesser degree that also happens uh, at the Avalon uh, explosion. And uh, they're basically saying, we're getting a rain of retroviruses. Mm-hmm. And you know this is right up your alley. And they basically say, it's this intense rain of retroviruses that are embedded in all these comets, big and small, and when they land on the Earth, uh, they engage the existing life on Earth and there's horizontal gene transfer of these retroviruses, and they claim that explains uh, the sudden simultaneous appearance of all these phyla, and they basically address all the mass extinction events, Mm -hmm. which means they're being repeatedly uh, bombarded by these intense rains of comets uh, that are delivering these retroviruses. And so that's kind of, again, up your alley. Are retroviruses really responsible for the generation of phyla the combination of retroviruses and horizontal uh, gene transfer pull off the job. That's kind of the heart of their paper, that the combination of retrovirus delivery on comets and horizontal gene transfer basically explains how the fossil record goes from simple bacteria uh, to the proliferation of millions of advanced species of plants and animals we have on earth today. And probably the most stunning part of their paper is they're saying When you look at the octopus, it does not fit any Earth-based evolutionary scenario. Uh, You've got this animal showing up early uh, with this rather advanced uh, brain and uh, central nervous system. um, And it's able to camouflage itself and change its camouflage. They're actually claiming that the real answer to how the octopus showed up on the Earth is that an octopus ovum was embedded in one of these comets, landed on the Earth, and that explains the origin of uh, octopus and the different octopus species. So if you think that that, that's a a bit of a stretch, they got more to say. Excuse me. Um, Here's an interesting quote. This is from one of the authors, uh, Matthew Sullivan. It says, quote, viruses modulate the function and evolution of all living things but to what extent remains a mystery. And then they claim that uh, they cite another research paper which basically says viruses are being deposited on the surface of the earth at a rate that they measure a billion per day per square meter. However, what they're assuming is these viruses all come from outer space. I think you and I would say, well, there's enough viruses here in the face of the earth this might be recirculated or right. viruses. Nevertheless, the data still stands at least a billion per square meter every day on the face of the Earth. And then, uh, oh yeah, here we go. Some juicy ones here. They, yeah, they claim that the emergence of retroviruses, we don't see that until the Cambrian explosion. And Of course, I think there you're limited with how far back can you take the genetics based on what we see today. Uh, But that's one of the claims they make. No retroviruses until the Avalon and Cambrian explosions. And those retroviruses got here uh, by uh, comets. And that retroviruses really are the driver for both the Cambrian and uh, Avalon explosions. And uh, then here's an interesting quote. Uh, from uh, the authors in their paper, quote, the entire galaxy and perhaps a local group of galaxies constitutes a single connected biosphere. And basically they cite NASA saying there could be 40 billion habitable planets. They stretch that to 100 billion habitable planets in our galaxy. They claim they're all habitable and therefore our entire Milky Milky Way galaxy is this connected biosphere, and that these planets are basically raining life mm. everywhere throughout our galaxy? We're just one of these galaxies uh, in which this uh, likes. And they say our biggest reason for adopting panspermia is a super astronomical improbability of a transition from non life to life, and therefore can't be on Earth. And then what I discovered is three of the authors, you got, well, Fred Hoyle, who's now passed away, but Tranja, Chandra wick and Ed Steele are the lead authors on these two papers. If you actually dig into their other papers, they're still promoting this idea uh, that Jeffrey Burbage was promoting before he passed, which is a semi-steady-state model mm-hmm. for the universe. So it was interesting to me that they're committed to rejecting Big Bang cosmology because they realize... billion years is not enough time. We need way more time than 13.8 billion years. So, what they're really hypothesizing is an infinitely large universe that's nearly infinitely old, uh, where there's been this biological uh, biosphere throughout all that time. And that's where you get enough time and a big enough prebiotic soup that we can explain the origin of life. And again, as you read through the paper, the fundamental assumption here: there is no God. Mm-hmm. If there is no God, then origin of life on Earth is impossible. It has to happen, the universe. But the only way we can make that happen, we need to make the universe extremely large and extremely old, and basically have this uh, prebiotic chemistry running uh, for virtually uh, infinite time. And uh, <laughs> here's what Ed Steele says: he says It is many orders of magnitude more likely that life emerged in one of trillions of comet-like incubators or water-bearing planets at a very early time in the growth uh, of the universe. If the universe is a steady state infinite, there is no formal abiogenesis. They basically say uh, infinite time, infinite extent, and we can make this all work. Another comment they make is, biology is timeless, which means there is no time constraint because of their belief uh, in this infinite universe. Believe it or not, this got through the peer review process, not once, uh, but just twice. And uh, they also cite the fact that they found bacteria on the outside of the interplanetary space station and claims that that proves that there's bacteria all over the universe. Well, let me kind of wrap this up as Uh, because I'm actually going to write an article on this for our uh, Reasons to Believe uh, blog series, Uh, but I was rather stunned that uh, I thought this panspermia was dead decades ago. It's coming back in force, but it's coming back in force, I think, for theological reasons as opposed to scientific reasons. And again, they do agree in the paper that fundamentally, these prebiotic molecules must come from the interstellar medium or interstellar uh, clouds, mm-hmm. and this is straight out of our origins of life book. When you go to these interstellar molecular clouds, we can't detect ammonia. Yeah, and ammonia is a crucial ingredient. It's, it's a very simple molecule, yeah. NH3. But the fact that we can't find it in interstellar molecular clouds, we can't find ribose. We can't find glucose. Those are the five and six carbon sugars we see in life. No nucleobases. No amino acids. And we don't see any of these molecules in a homochiral form. I mean, you can have tons and tons of ribose, but if it's 50-50 uh, random uh, left and right-handed, it's going to be of no value uh, for putting together the nucleobases to make RNA and DNA. And you've got the same problem with amino acids. Unless they all show up 100% left-handed or 100% right-handed, they're going to be of no value uh, for making the proteins. Now, the one thing I would say to update all this is that astronomy has advanced significantly even since we brought out the second edition in 2014. Today, astronomers now have the capability of detecting these molecules in interstellar molecular clouds at about, uh, uh, well, better than one part per billion. Wow. When we we did the book, the sensitivity was one part per million it's now below one part per billion. It's at 100 parts per trillion. Now, you're a chemist. I'm convinced that if you've got the sensitivity of detecting these things at uh, 100 parts per trillion, we're going to find these molecules. Because as I understand the chemistry, and correct me if I'm wrong, in these interstellar molecular clouds, the 140 uh, carbonaceous molecules we found, we know that sustains... That the chemistry in these clouds are constructing these molecules the problem is we got a parallel chemistry that's destroying these molecules Mm -hmm. and therefore we will find these molecules but because we have mechanisms that are destroying these molecules almost as fast as they're being made we're going to find these molecules at very low abundance levels so i'm going on record today fuzz we're going to find these molecules in interstellar molecular clouds, but if we're finding them at a hundred parts per trillion, or even a hundred parts per billion. That's of no value for any unguided, you know, no God-involved uh, origin of life uh, model.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, those are extremely low levels, and you'd have to have some kind of mechanism that would concentrate them to, yeah. to sufficient levels that that it would be meaningful.
1: You have to concentrate them, and you've got to concentrate them in homochiral form, and that's something, in spite of their very long paper, they never address those issues. Uh, They just assume this isn't a barrier, but I'd argue it's a fundamental barrier. Another barrier is this idea that these eggs, uh, these seeds of plants, uh, that the genes would actually survive a trip from another uh, planetary system to our planet that somehow the comet is going to retain these uh, things intact. And this, again, is straight out of our book, is that in interstellar space, these comets are going to be exposed to X-ray and ultraviolet radiation. And uh, we're looking at typically millions of years uh, for these comets Mm -hmm. to move from another planetary system to our planetary system. And if you're looking at millions of years and at that degree of X-ray and UV exposure, the genes will be destroyed, yeah. the eggs will be destroyed, the seeds will be destroyed, uh, even things like RNA molecules will be destroyed, the proteins will be destroyed. All you're going to have left, at best, are the building blocks of the building blocks of DNA, RNA, proteins, okay. uh, and uh, the lipids. And then, of course, as a comet goes through our atmosphere, it, he- it heats up, and the heating is going to be a problem it's going to be destroying these uh, molecules. And I remember at the 2001, 2002 Origin of Life Research Conference we attended, uh, Jay I yeah. made the comment, well, if we're talking these molecules coming on dust, they're going to be destroyed. If they're in comets, they're going to be destroyed. The only way they can be, be preserved uh, through interstellar space travel is if they're encapsulated inside a big rock. And I remember making the comment, it needs to be a rock at least two meters in diameter where the rock has no porosity and no cracks. And hey, of all the two meter diameter rocks we see in the face of the earth, they all have cracks. They all have porosity. But he's saying, that's what we would need. And you would need uh, the gene uh, or the uh, bacterium uh, or the RNA or DNA molecules and the proteins to be in the center of this two meter rock yeah. uh, where there's no crocs or porosity in the rock for it to be able to survive without being destroyed and then he calculated how frequently planet earth receives a rock from another uh, planetary body and again he assumed let's assume every star in the universe has got planets on it 10 planets each where every planet mm-hmm. is saturated with life And those planets are being bombarded, and therefore comets are everywhere in our galaxy uh, are bringing these uh, life things to us. He calculated uh, that even with that optimistic scenario, we get one rock uh, being delivered to planet Earth the size of a human fist, forget about two meters, the size of a human fist uh, or bigger, and the time scale was we get one of those every 10 to the 16 years. And the universe is only 10 to the 10 years old, so that's when I remember someone coming up to the microphone. That that to me was a dramatic moment. Uh, this was being explained, and then we had a scientist come to the Q and A microphone and said, "In this conference, we've eliminated planet Earth. We've eliminated Mars. We eliminated the rest of the solar system as a candidate for the origin of life. We've eliminated panspermia. The only thing left." is directed panspermia. Intelligent civilizations who originated long before us, visited us in spaceships, and they deposited life 3.8 billion years ago, and they kept coming back to explain all the mass speciation events we see here on planet Earth. And I remember we were talking to one another and saying, well, they're on the right track. Uh, we it, it does require uh, intelligent an intelligent being bringing life to planet Earth. Uh, but, hey, uh, it's really not just an extraterrestrial intelligent being that's bringing life to planet Earth. It's a being beyond the universe itself yeah. that's bringing life to planet Earth. And a few people overheard us. So we had some interesting discussions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, e- extra universal panspermia. There you go. <laughs> you know, what, what's what's interesting to me is this idea that much of the the criticisms that, you know, people like us who are old Earth creationists or ID people have leveled against, kind of a materialistic explanation for the origin and the history of life, are being echoed, you know, in in these, pa- in these papers where, in a sense, they're acknowledging that these criticisms are indeed valid. They're
1: valid, yeah. The idea that life originated on planet Earth—they just say. No scientific credibility to that.
0: And, and in a sense, they really are not providing an explanation for abiogenesis or for, you know, it's just simply punting, <laughs> you know.
1: Well, it kind of reminded me of the multiverse or having to appeal to infinity, yeah. an infinitely large universe and an infinitely old universe to try to get around the improbabilities. Yeah. Well, as if that's going to help.
0: You're just assuming that life is a given yeah. in the universe. Yeah. Uh, but you're so you're, you 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 again are not really providing any kind of satisfying explanation.
1: Well, I also noted that they're basically claiming that our entire galaxy is a connected biosphere, and all they cite uh, is the liquid water habitable zone. It's only one of thirteen known planetary habitable zones. You need all thirteen yeah. for there to be any possibility of life. And therefore, their biosphere hypothesis is clearly refuted. And uh, one point they did make, however, is if we're right about this uh, biosphere, the whole galaxy being a connected biosphere, we're going to find life or at least the remains of life ubiquitously throughout our solar system. Haven't found it yet, uh, but we've been on public record at least since the 1990s. We will find it simply because Earth has been so prolific with mm-hmm. life for so long that meteors, and comets for that matter, have exported the remains of Earth life throughout the solar system. But I notice what they were saying in the paper. When we find the remains of life, this is going to prove that the entire galaxy mm-hmm. is a connected biosphere, when in fact all it proves is that life has been abundant on Earth for a long time. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm excited to hear what you got to say because I was looking at the paper fuzz, and it's kind of like our two discoveries are connected, so
0: they are yeah well this one is is dealing with kind of the original life question and the the notion of creating self replicating rnas but to kind of introduce the discovery uh just like to talk a little bit about uh a a significant moment in in legal history uh, in the United States and um this actually goes back to the early 1960s, where um, a guy named Nico Jacobellis, who uh, owned, was a manager of an uh, of an art house theater in some community in Ohio, uh, showed a movie called Les, Les Amants, uh, which depicted n- nudity in the film, and so he was actually charged with violating the obscenity standards in the community. Was convicted and then fined, and he appealed that conviction to the Ohio State Supreme Court, which upheld the prediction, uh, the, the the conviction, and then he was later he later appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that agreed to take the t- the case, and they actually ended up overturning the conviction, and uh, there there as you can imagine, the deliberation involved things like the First Amendment and freedom of speech and. How do you balance that with community standards, and uh, and what do
1: you do about all the nude statues in Europe? <laughs> right, right,
0: and, and so anyway, uh, the the Supreme Court actually struggled to justify why they overturned the conviction, uh, and uh, one of the Supreme Court members at that time, a guy named Potter Stewart, who was on the Supreme Court from 1958 to 1981 was tasked with writing the justification for overturning it. And so he he wrote these words that are are pretty famous, where he said, "Um, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within the shorthand description hardcore pornography, and perhaps I could never succeed in in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. And so this is where this idea uh, of I know I know it when I see it
1: I know it when I see it comes right. from,
0: and you know unfortunately, you know Potter Stewart has been lampooned for this statement and and is kind of viewed in comical terms, which is really sad because he spent over twenty years on the u s Supreme Court, but he's remembered for this this one statement, but there's something rather profound in what he was getting at, you know with this, and that is that many times there are things that we can't really define but we know it when we see it right and so art is one of those examples where i don't think anybody's ever produced a satisfactory definition of what art is but you and i can recognize art when we see it we might disagree though <laughs> yeah yeah but we also recognize when something isn't art right likewise right. with music again we we can't define what music is but you know, we we know it when we hear it, and we right. know when we hear something that isn't music.
1: Well, so like jackhammers is not music. <laughs> yeah, that's right,
0: that's right. You know, uh, and some people might argue that death metal isn't music either. But <laughs> but but then that would lead to a, a debate. But the the point is, is that you know sometimes there's it's a struggle to define things, but yet we intuitively recognize them. And this is even true in biology, believe it or not you would think of of science being you know this human endeavor where things are precisely defined and precisely characterized but the fact of the matter is biologists can't for example define what a species is that we know that there then there's you know it's there's almost a, a whole industry in biology where people debate you know what is the appropriate concept for a species yet most biologists can tell you if something is a separate species from something else so we can intuitively recognize the difference, though we can't define it. And this is even true with life. Right? We, we we recognize life when we see it, but we can't define it.
1: Well, Fuzz, if, if you can't define it, doesn't it tell you that it's complicated?
0: Yeah, well, that that's a really— I mean,
1: that applies to music, art, it applies to life, right. pornography. It's complicated.
0: Yeah, it's complicated, right? And, and I would agree with that. And, you know, what biologists do is essentially describe— life and what is universal, what are the universal characteristics of life, but they, there's really not any opportunity to truly define it. And I talk about this in my book, Creating Life in the Lab, and and, and this has implications because if we're trying to understand the origin of life, that if we can't define life, how do we know if life actually originates uh, through chemical evolution? or? You know, if we're trying to create artificial life forms in the lab, how do we know that what we made is truly a life form? Or if astrobiologists are searching for evidence for life beyond Earth, how do we know that what we did, we found is actually life? So the, the uh, increased interest in astrobiology has actually intensified attempts on the part of biochemists and original life researchers to really try to define life. Uh, but most people would agree that what you're looking for in living systems ultimately is the ability to reproduce, to replicate. And so a lot of work in original life research is targeting, uh, trying to uh, explain how self-replicating molecular systems could emerge.
1: Could I add that it's self-replication plus the capacity to garner energy to perform a significant work?
0: Yeah, uh, and there, there's a lot of other requirements uh, right, right. Be beyond self-replication. So this is just one. This is one, but it seems to be kind of like that, that that, center, that, that one that it is elevated to the top. That if we can explain the evolution of self-replicating systems, we we we've solved the original life problem. That's the mindset that I I, I tend to glean, and and a lot of people are looking for oops self-replicating RNA molecules. And and the reason why is because people, many original life researchers think the original life proceeded through the RNA world, right?
1: The RNA gave rise to future proteins and DNA as well as RNA molecules. Right,
0: and, and that the first biochemistry was really RNA-based. And it's kind of in this vein uh, that I want to talk about this uh, paper that was published by a team of Japanese researchers. Uh, uh, and this is actually, in my view an example of, of science at its best. This is an incredible piece of work done by this research team from Japan. Uh, and they are actually building off of a, a prior study done, uh, I think published in 20, uh, actually 2013, uh, where they created this uh, quote unquote self-replicating RNA system in the lab. Uh, and, and I'll describe what they what this system consists of in a minute. But again, it's, it's really very fine work. But the latest paper, which again uh, was published just recently, uh, takes that original work they did in 2013, that original system, and they showed that they could start with a population of RNA molecules that were identical, uh, that had the ability to self-replicate, uh, and I'll put that in quotes <laughs> because you'll see why in a minute, Right, uh, and that that system would actually diversify over time in kind of a long-term evolution experiment uh, to create a network of self-replicating RNA species where if they removed any one individual component from that species, the whole network would collapse. And and so this is really a a very interesting study they did where they claim that this is providing fundamental insight into the emergence of self-replication and... Has bearing on the origin of life question, and so it's instructive in light of that claim, you know, uh, to to actually look at what they did experimentally. And so, this is a taken from uh, one of the papers they published, uh, where they have essentially, if you look at the middle of the paper, you see the red arrow. Mm-hmm. That's their uh, self-replicating RNA molecule, and that that RNA molecule contains in it the information needed to make a protein called Q-beta replicase. And this is actually a, what's called an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Uh, it's actually found in certain RNA viruses, and it's part of the mechanism by which the RNA viruses will replicate when they invade a cell. And so this RNA replicase uh, uh, that's encoded in the RNA actually becomes translated. So they, they couple this with a what, what's called an in vitro translation system, which is a basically the translation apparatus extracted and purified from uh, E. coli. And this work was done in 2000 where researchers created this in vitro translation system. And so they make use of that where the in vitro translation system will read the RNA molecule produce a copy of this Q-beta replicase, which will then replicate the RNA. And during that, the the Q-beta replicase is error-prone. It will uh, make mistakes, and eventually, over time, some of the RNA molecules will actually have the Q-beta replicase information disabled. And so now you have a population of RNAs that are called parasitic RNAs. They can't replicate themselves but they actually are still replicated by this this Q-beta replicase. And so over time, you go from this, what I call it, this clonal population of RNA molecules to this community of RNA molecules. That That
1: includes the parasitic.
0: The parasitic. Uh, But again, interestingly enough, if you remove the parasitic RNA, it causes the system to collapse. Wow. So nobody quite knows why why that's the case. But here's... Again, how the the experiment works, uh, where they they start with their population um, in a test tube and they incorporate the the RNA molecule. And just
1: to be clear, Buzz, they're not talking about making these RNA molecules from scratch. They take existing RNA. Well, they 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 have
0: synthesized the RNA in the lab mm-hmm. to include the. the the information for the Q to replicate. So this is a totally a lab construct. Okay. But so it's it's designed basically to replicate. <laughs> but it, you know, uh, but so they enca- encapsulate the RNA in these oil drops. So you can see that on the left hand side. Right. And included is the is the in vitro translation system. And then they they let it do its replication. They take a, a sample of that and they introduce it into another test tube with a fresh. A set of um, oil drops that have fresh the fresh in vitro translation system because some of the components get spent during the course of replication and they just keep repeating that over and over again.
1: Say they get spent. What do you mean by that? In
0: other words, the, the components get used up. Okay. Yeah. So the and and so uh, again on the right hand side you can kind of see again the 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 so
1: there needs to be a resupply.
0: There needs to be a resupply and so this is just showing. The same information in, in a little bit different format. How they did the experiment, uh, but the, the, the point here is that even though they're claiming that this is a that this is a truly a bona fide self replicating RNA system uh, th- that does give some understanding about what these systems are capable of doing. It's it is remarkable that it can diversify and create this network of self replicators, but to suggest that this has any bearing on the origin of life, at least through chemical evolution, is really a stretch because, first of all, they this has been a carefully designed <laughs> RNA self-replicating system that is re- only capable of replicating because of the production of a protein that is found in nature that is capable of replicating RNA molecules.
1: And I presume they already artificially protected these molecules.
0: Yes, because they're in within oil drops. Right, right. right? so it's, it's containing them in a, in a local environment that affords some level of protection from the aqueous environment. Right. Right, which would, would hydrolyze the RNA molecules. Uh, but then on top of that, they're using this in vitro translation system. So here's here's what, I did a little bit of work, uh, research on what is actually found in this in vitro translation okay, system. Okay, good. So here's what's found in it. There are, Three proteins that are called uh, initiation factors, one, two, and three. There are three proteins that are called elongation factors, EFG, EF2, and EFTS. The, these are ne- necessary for the RNA molecule to be read by the, ribos- by the ribosomes that are in this, in this translation system so that the Q beta replicase can be pr- produced. And then there's also these release factors. So there's three of those. That's Those are nine components. Uh, and, in fact, the Q-beta replicase only operates in combination with EFTS and EF2. So it has to actually uh, make use of these. So it's not even operating by itself. There are 20 amino ACLT RNA synthases. These are enzymes that attach RNA attach amino acids to transfer RNA molecules, which is needed for the ribosomes to work. Uh, there are, of course, ribosomes. There's a T7 RNA polymerase. There are 46 different transfer RNA molecules. There are four nucleotide uh, phosphate, tri- uh, triphosphates, the building blocks of RNA, creatine phosphates, the 20 amino acids, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's that's in this system. So in other words... In order to get this system to self-replicate...
1: It needs a lot of external help.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you you basically have this full-blown translation system isolated from E. coli. You've got, again, a carefully constructed RNA molecule that encodes a protein that is designed to replicate RNA. So to say that this has any bearing on the origin of life is really very hard to accept.
1: But it does have bearing on the intelligence of the biochemists that pulled this off.
0: Right. Well, what it highlights, first of all, is how complex a system must be for self-replication to occur. This idea that you could somehow create an RNA molecule or a collection of RNA molecules that would collectively have the ability for self-replication is really very hard to envision in light of the complexity of this system, which really is a is in many respects a minimal, a minimal system where you're taking the bare minimal components of, of, of E. coli to create this capacity for translation. And then, again, you've, you've got minimal components in the RNA you know, molecule. But still, I mean, this, this is an incredibly complex system. So you know, not only does it have no bearing on the origin of life, but it's highlighting, again, just what the requirements are for self-replication. But what's intriguing to me is that these researchers very clearly have the imprint of of their agency as intelligent agents on the design of this experiment. That it it only works because you've got intelligent agents who understand biochemistry very well, who've been able to to then design this system and then execute the self-replication through detailed manipulations in the lab. So if anything, what this work is really doing is demonstrating for self-replication to originate, intelligent agency must have played a role. And, and by extension, that the original life requires, again, intelligent agency, which is really, I think, dovetails beautifully with the discovery that you talked about. Right. right.
1: And it reminds me of a paper we both cited, Fuzz, I've written a few years ago where right. the bio- Origin of Life chemist says, we Origin of Life chemists need to be honest in the papers we publish right. and tell the readers how many times we commit the hand of God dilemma. Right. Which we means where we control things right. that require a degree of intelligence and technology that would be equivalent to you know God intervening. Yeah. And I remember what he said at the end of the paper. He said, I can't think of any significant paper on origin of light chemistry where the hand of God dilemma has not committed at least a dozen times. Yep. And we pretend it's not there at all.
0: Yeah. And this is exactly what you see in this paper. Right. Is it, it's the hand of God dilemma, you know, essentially permeating the work. Uh, And, uh, you know, and yet the researchers don't seem to really acknowledge that you know, by virtue of the fact that they make this assertion that this is giving us insight into the emergence of self-replication and the origin of life, and, and with the implication that this is all conceivable uh, on the early well, earth. Well,
1: I would agree that it is giving us insight, that it takes someone more intelligent, more better finance with greater technology <laughs> than the biochemists who authored the paper, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing is we we also, I think, want to be cautious about being about ridiculing these scientists, because on the other hand, this is an incredibly impressive scientific study. I mean, what they've done is is really impressive, and it's impressive because of the ingenuity of the workers involved. And, and so, again, that what makes the study so impressive is is essentially what undermines the case for for chemical evolution uh, is the ingenuity of the workers.
1: So, yeah, they need to be complimented for the remarkable lab achievement. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, you know, what, what's kind of fun is in, in light of this, it, it's one thing to say, well, here we have empirical evidence, really, for what it takes to create self-replication, which is, again, the involvement of intelligent agency. But it's it's fun to, to take that insight and begin to speculate, you know, could this be telling us something maybe about the mode of divine action? You know, because we're both convinced that the origin of life requires a creator's involvement. Uh, But how did the the creator do this? And um, a few years ago, our our friends Dan Dyke and Hugh Henry, Hugh Henry's a physicist, Dan Dyke's an Old Testament scholar, wrote a series of papers that are are available on our website at reasons.org about this concept of hypernaturalism. Uh, I don't know if they th- this concept is original to them but I think the term is something they coined and and it's an interesting idea whether you buy it or not is one th- is another thing but their 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 argument is that it it seems odd to them that a creator would intervene in such a way to operate outside the laws of nature in a routine basis because why would a creator create a universe with particular laws of nature and then operate in opposition to those laws. This is their, their argument. And so they they argue that it makes more sense to think that the creator would operate within the laws of nature that he has instituted and that you could still yet detect the creator's work, his handiwork. So it's not theistic evolution or creator's controlling processes, but in a way that's hidden. They argue that you know, the, the creator's involvement is evident because You see the just right thing happening at the just right time with the just right order of magnitude, like the like, you know, Fia hitting the earth. Right. Mm -hmm. With the just right angle so that the collision produces this incredible outcome, you know, which we would say is miraculous. And they would say that this is how the creator works and it's no less miraculous or that the miraculous is 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 clearly evident in this work because again, of all these things that have to be just right to produce the, the, the desired effect. Uh, now, if you, if you think about this concept of hypernaturalism, what these researchers did from Japan was essentially an example of hypernaturalism. They operated within the laws of nature. They took the materials from, from within nature, and yet they combined them in this unusual, non-natural way to produce an effect. Right, they operated hypernaturally. Now, if we as human beings are made in God's image, and in could it be that God, when He brought the uni- brought life into existence, operated in a hypernatural way?
1: Well, let me give an analogy, fuzz. There's nothing about the manufacture of an aircraft carrier that violates the laws of physics or chemistry. That's a beautiful analogy. Uh, but unless you got some really skilled, intelligent uh, workers assembling this thing—it's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that would be the same concept—is right. you know of it, they're they're operating hypernaturally, according to Dan Dyke and Hugh Henry's ideas, and so you know could it be that maybe the origin of life is actually something that are, took place through natural process mechanisms, but that it was a hypernatural, you know, application of those mechanisms that the creator employed, you know, to, to bring about the origin of life. And if that's the case, then it means that to propose the idea that there was a creator that was responsible for the origin of life doesn't violate kind of the spirit of methodological naturalism. It still now becomes something that is that we can study. Right. And in fact, I would argue that people like, you know, um, uh, what is the guy's name Clement Reichert or Clements Reichert, yeah, right you know that that wrote this idea of the hand of God dilemma or these Japanese researchers are in effect uh, investigating the original life you know in the in the framework of hypernaturalism and are actually giving us in, insight as to you know not only is intelligent agency required but maybe insight as to mechanistically how that creator, through divine action, pull this well, off. I
1: remember when you got started in this. Fuzz, is like these Japanese researchers are thinking, are giving us insight. How did God pull it off? Yeah. How did He make it? And one thing that really intrigued me. Maybe you can comment on this. You made a comment about how you got these RNA molecules, and side by side you got the parasitic RNA molecules. But then you make the comment when you take away the parasitic. RNA molecules, the whole thing collapses. Yeah. Question: Do we see any evidence of that operating inside cells?
0: Uh, I think the answer is yes. I mean, okay. because in, in a sense, you know, when you're what you're looking at in, um, you know, in cells are these interdependent biochemical systems that, um, you know, and because of their interdependency, if you disable a particular system. The whole the whole cell will collapse,
1: including the parasitic ones. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that to me sounds like a really fun application. You know, take what these Japanese right. uh, biochemists have done. Let's see if we can go to the next step and try to figure out. Okay, what is the crucial role these parasitic RNA molecules yeah. uh, in contributing to this? Right. That'd be a fun research project. Oh,
0: it would be. And I, at this point, I don't think they have any idea. Right. You know how that happens. Uh, other than that it does happen and and you're right, I mean it suggests a very interesting problem well that's where I
1: think the God question can actually guide biochemical research, you know finding something like this. let's pursue it and see where it goes.
0: yeah, yeah, so anyway, that's all I've got to, got for for today, so uh, uh, looks like we're ready to wrap it wrap sure. things up well, Ra- Why
1: don't you wrap it up for us?
0: Yeah, yeah, so anyway, just want to say thank you for watching and listening to Star Cells and God. Uh, Just uh, as a reminder, please go to our website, reasons.org. Check out um, uh, the resources we have available. And then also, uh, don't forget to follow us on social media, rtb underscore official, and go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe and Subscribe, and then set a reminder for Star Cells and God so you can be alerted to the fact that uh, when an episode drops that you'll be the first to know. And I just want to finish with this thought uh, that we like to say around here at Reasons to Believe, the, the more that we know about science, the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe.
1: And don't forget your audio uh, version of Humans 2.0.
0: Yeah, go to our website, reasons.org, backslash donate, and uh, give us uh, a little bit of money, and you, you can get an exclusive copy of
1: um, Humans, 2.0. Humans,
0: 2.0, oops, Humans 2.0, the audio book, easy for me to say. <laughs> Thank you.